Hey everybody, this is Christopher Talon. I'm the host of Creative Ops, a podcast for creative people by creative people. This podcast is made possible by Hey Guys Media Group. Check them out, heyguysmediagroup.com. They are the technical wizards who have allowed this podcast to even become a thing in the first place. So if you've ever thought of starting a podcast, check out heyguysmediagroup.com. And also, if you're a human being and you smell bad and need to wash yourself once in a while, check out Baby Farm Soaps. They're only on Facebook, so go to Facebook, type in Baby Farm Soaps, and you'll find this wonderful company from Berea, Kentucky that makes soaps, lip balms, hand creams, all kinds of stuff. And I, all the things that I just mentioned, I got a package of, that's why those three were fresh in my mind. High quality, organic quality ingredients. Best stuff out there. You'll love it. Also check out Rivertown Adventures in Lansing, Michigan. They're on line. Uh, they're on. They're online at rivertownadventures.com. The most fun you're gonna have outdoors in Lansing, Michigan, is at Rivertown Adventures. Rivertownadventures.com. I'm not gonna say it again. Yes, I am. Rivertownadventures.com. All right, my guest today is my brother from another mother, specifically my brother-in-law. Uh, so Mike Bryman, he has worked in movies as a visual effects artist. He's worked in virtual reality, doing a lot of the same skills, but, you know, applied to virtual reality. He's done freelance work, worked with, uh, lots of different people, uh, on the artistic side, on the production side, all kinds of different things. You'll hear all about that. Uh, he's a very smart guy, very nice guy. And, uh, Obviously, just a very creative guy, too. Not to mention, he also develops software. Just, yeah, it goes on and on. Really fun guy to listen to. A lot of wisdom, a lot of insights. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think you'll enjoy it just because he's a, a pleasant person to, to listen to. So, enjoy this interview, please, with Mike Bremen. For anybody listening that doesn't know who you are, what's just a simple intro, you know, your name, your current position and what you do without going into too much depth uh can i start with you're my brother-in-law can we start yeah with <laughs> yeah that's where the connection is i don't have some some, some cool connection of uh people on my rolodex it's just whoever happens to be related to me okay so wait so we're you you want the you want the bio from like the professional uh just, the, a, the just professional a quick, slant on the bio all right just a quick simple rundown so people listening like okay so that's who this guy is um i'm a guy who is 42 years old. Um, <laughs> I, uh, so I'm, um, I'm a, I, I refer to myself uh, kind of professionally as a, a visual effects artist or a technical artist or a computer graphics generalist. Mm -hmm. um, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit clunky to have three different kind of titles and associations, but that's generally what I do. I make graphics on computers. That's what I do for a living. I've been doing that since I was in my early twenties. Um, and, uh, freelanced for a number of years. I live out in California. Uh, I live in San Francisco, um, just North of Golden Gate Park. I'm from Michigan originally. And, um, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been making pretty pictures on screens for the better part of, uh, 20 years now. So. That's me. The place I want to start is college, 
and then we'll move from college kind of into now because I think that it's very interesting that you've worked on movies and film, well, movies and films, that's the same thing, films and television projects and things that a lot of people might be familiar with. Um, but as a freshman in college, you were looking at going into English as a, right off the bat, or did you kind of settle on that when you were there, English lit? You know, I, I always, from, from the time I was pretty young, I always just loved to read and write stories. Um, and so that, you know, that kind of naturally lended itself to a, a major declaration of, you know, English creative writing Yeah. Um, when I was an undergrad. And that, that's, that's been, that's, I guess that you could say that's been kind of a through line for um, all of my professional career, even though I haven't gone into the business of writing and storytelling per se. Does that make sense? Whoops, I turned my mic off. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that does make sense. So you graduate from school. You've got a, your, your degree is English literature, right? Yeah. Okay. So you graduate from the University of Michigan with a degree in English literature. And mm -hmm. do you immediately say, I'm going to California. I'm going to try to mm -hmm. break into the movies. <laughs> yeah. Or like, yeah. do you yeah. kind of think... At what point does that cross your mind that you're going to go do that while you're still in school or when you actually have to? Like well, wait, I think, I think, you know, yeah. I mean, around the, around the time of my junior year of undergrad, I realized that there, there was only one year left and I had to make a decision about what was going to happen next. Right. Yeah. And that decision is you either go on to grad school and pursue, you know, more of an academic um, uh, line of things or, um, you go out into the world and start working and you know if it, that that's what I kind of mean by when I say like I didn't want to go into the business of writing and storytelling that was the the keystone moment so to speak right where it, it was like okay well what else are you going to do with your life if you're not <laughs> right school's done you don't want to go into more schooling and you don't want to go into the business of writing and storytelling so what what's next right and so at that time there were you know Pixar was uh coming up there were uh, animated films was clearly going to be um uh, the, the next medium of storytelling um uh or a new frontier of storytelling um there were a lot of really interesting things happening in film at the time with computer graphics right like some of the, the seminal films of uh, you know jurassic park um terminator 2 um even uh, fight club a few years i guess that was, was fight club 98 that sounds Can't about quite right remember yeah, yeah, but you know, th there were there were amazing things happening with this convergence of kind of photo real rendering and recreation in the service of storytelling that seemed um, really like a natural next step for me. And I, I'd always, you know, aside from writing and storytelling, I'd always had a real interest in uh, computers and technology. And if we want to roll back even further on the timeline to when I was a lot younger, um, I remember an Apple IIe with a you know green and black. <laughs> monochrome screen coming home that you know that my dad brought from the university where he worked and and that it was like it was like this little magic box that I got to tinker with right and so that was uh I guess I did mention that I'm 42 I was about to say that really dates me but yeah I, I <laughs> revealed that secret um the uh yeah so so that you know there's this nice convergence of storytelling and uh artistry and technology that was uh at for me at that time clear that it was it was just a kind of logical next step for me to take and 
uh, I, I also, you know, kind of conveniently or coincidentally had a strong desire to um, get out of the Midwest and see new things and try on new hats and have different experiences. And so uh, moving to California was, uh, again, a, a natural kind of um, progression of that whole theme. Did you, would you say looking back now that you had a realistic idea of what you were getting into when you moved out west or no, did you have not. stars no. in your eyes and think <laughs> was, that it was all going to come easy i was 20 I was 23 years old i had no idea anything of anything right like, who does yeah. <laughs> life is surprising isn't it so did uh, did you follow a friend or a girl or just chase a, a certain opportunity out west or how'd you end up actually locating out there um, I, so I started, uh, after I graduated that summer, um, uh, summer 2001, I started emailing, uh, like basically cold emailing people and saying, uh, you know, what I was interested in. And also, you know, from, from the time I was, uh, when, when I was a junior, uh, at a, as an undergrad at U of M, I started building out a portfolio of 3d renderings, which was, you know, my understanding of how you got a job, um, or, you know, made any kind of, um, first step into that industry. Right. Um, and so I, I started sending that portfolio out, um, which <laughs> was, you know, there, there was no, I, I was, I was self-taught. There was no academic instruction. It was, it, I mean, it's, well, it's yeah, a horrible it's, portfolio, but. <laughs> and, and with that, cause I would imagine that there's a lot more resources for somebody to learn right now, like even with just YouTube videos. The, oh, yeah. The last Absolutely. guest that I talked to is a professional artist. He paints the insides of uh, buildings and does murals and stuff like that. And he was like, yeah, yeah. I get a lot of my style from watching YouTube videos. Like, oh, dang. Yep. But at the time that oh, you get into that, was it all books? Was it like watching, like reading technical manuals or what? I mean, the, the, the internet was a thing in 2000, 2001. Um, sure. there, there, were, there were some resources on there, certainly not to the magnitude that there are now. Um, uh, but yeah, that was, that was the primary resource. Um, and um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember exactly how that... Well, at, at any rate... Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was VHS tapes of uh, of animations that you put together, and you quite literally sent them through the physical mail yeah. to somebody on the receiving end who had a VCR, <laughs> yeah, pop yeah. it up in a in a room, and make a determination about whether they wanted to call you back or not. And you know, you put your name, and your phone number on on the sticky label. Um, and I remember getting real like quote unquote professional with it by. Uh, printing out, you know, the the sleeves for the v, uh, VHS uh, uh, cases and oh yeah, um, and the whole thing, you know, like imagine going to a blockbuster. <laughs> like I tried to <laughs> simulate that experience for somebody who would receive these these cold uh, envelopes in the mail, and and yeah, it was it was just a lot of like hunting and pecking for um, for people who I could just send stuff out to, and y you know that that isn't entirely uh, dissimilar from the way that you would send out a, a manuscript or something like that to an right. editor or somebody. I mean, you, you could make the argument that like cold emailing an editor, a, a manuscript that you printed out is just a waste of your time, money and paper. But a lot of times um, it is, these, you know, <laughs> but, um, but, but the, you know, that, uh, that kind of understanding of how the, uh, how, how to get a job, um, was, uh, very, very relevant. Right. Um, 
and so so I just kind of translated what I knew into um, into this this new industry that I knew nothing about. Clearly, and, right? I get out to San Francisco and I I had to relearn everything that I self taught myself. Well, I was going to say, did you have something lined up professionally here? Or did you just move here and like I'll just get a job, whatever I got to do to start? I had a I had an intern. Somebody emailed me back uh, and offered me an internship, an unpaid internship. Um, open-ended and, uh, and, uh, that they would welcome me with, uh, open arms once, uh, I landed in San Francisco and that was it. That's a big chance, huh? Was that, uh, was that nerve wracking at the time or were you young enough? No, again, I was 23. I was, you know, what's the, (laughs) what's the risk? (laughs) Yeah, no, of course you're like, sounded like an amazing adventure. Go out to California, start a new life and, you know, like there's no, there's no, uh, the risk is very low. (laughs) <laughs> or maybe, uh, maybe, maybe that's not the right, right way to put it. That not that the risk is low, but that the perceived risk is low. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll give yeah. It that you don't have the family, <laughs> and you're not risking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not as much to lose at the time. <laughs> um, or concept of what what could be lost, right? Yeah. Concept of the things that concept of the world in general. Uh, you know, I hadn't um, I hadn't traveled much outside of Michigan, and so um, and, and again being. 23 it, it's just a just a very different um a different perspective i think on uh on where you want your life to go yeah for sure so i've got your imdb pulled up i'm just curious what was the first company that you got into and what were some of the things that you were doing and projects you were working on like as a you know quote unquote entry level job as an intern mm, um well so the intern was a uh, the intern position, the internship was a digital media company um, that produced training and materials for other people, for people who wanted to learn how to, people like me who wanted to learn uh, the art and craft of um, digital media in general, like computer graphics, uh, video production, all all uh, a really broad range right that's very interesting um, did that did that help you like did you pick up a lot just from being in that environment totally yeah i mean the 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 exchange was this is an unpaid internship but you will learn all kinds of actual production expertise and techniques in our program and in exchange for uh us giving you this knowledge you are going to go out there and produce tutorials and training material as you learn for other learners who might yeah. come in the pipe. So it's, it's this, it was this weird. Uh, it wasn't a pyramid scheme. I wouldn't say that it was, but, <laughs> but, but it was, it was this idea of, uh, of mutual exchange of effort and time um, and education. Right. And, and it was actually, it was a, it was a really kind of cool business model. Um, so, uh, so yeah, but that better was than like a credit. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and there, yeah. there were, and, and I met, I met a lot of really great people. Um, and some of my first friends in this new city, right. Uh, came from the time that I spent there and I spent as much time as I possibly could there. Um, I also had to make ends meet. So, you know, I had to uh, wait tables and, um, do freelance like construction work and all kinds of random things, market research participant, you know, yeah. <laughs> all that kind of stuff that you do just to, um, cobble together, uh, some cash to pay the rent. Um, especially in but, a city that is not a cheap place to live already. Well, right. I think you already mentioned you're in San Francisco. So yeah. 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 So yeah. So I, I spent as much time as there, as much time there as I possibly could. Um, and then 
when I started getting uh, paying freelance jobs, it, oh, man, there were a lot of random things. I, this is many years ago now. Um, I remember doing some architectural visualization for an artist, um, uh, a Bay Area artist. Uh, some website development. I actually taught uh, some website portfolio building classes um, at an art college here um, early on. And then, you know, the, the first film that I worked on was uh, Sin City in 2004. Um, oh, no and, kidding. And I, I moved down to the um, Central Coast, down to Santa Maria, and lived in a Holiday Inn for uh, 10 months, I think it was. Um, and, uh, yeah, and worked on Sin City. And that, that was my first freelance job, my, my first professional freelance job, and the first one that I actually moved anywhere for. That's that's kind of impressive because I mean that was a that was a a big budget movie. So to to jump in on something like that on your first project, I would I would think that would be kind of nerve wracking because it's not like some indie thing that maybe maybe nobody will see. <laughs> well, it's it, uh, it's a little funny that you say that because uh, it it wasn't big budget for the time. It's Robert Rodriguez, right? Yeah. Who came from uh, Texas and had. Uh, a very kind of low budget uh, approach to doing really expensive things. Like he, he was one of the first pioneers of, of uh, all green screen films um, since yeah. being one, one of the early ones. Um, and so he was, uh, he was kind of a visionary uh, and, and, and certainly like the, the, you know, the budgets for, for any Hollywood film are uh, much bigger than independent film. So I guess it really is all, dependent on the scale that we're talking about here but in terms of hollywood budgets i think sin city was uh was on the lower end of uh of that spectrum but anyway i mean that's yeah i digress um <laughs> <laughs> sorry what was your question <laughs> okay yeah no and then i see that i, I scrolled down because they have it in like reverse order um chronologically oh and then you did adventures of shark boy and lava girl 3d my kids mm-hmm. love that you got into film independently not with a company well okay yeah so um i guess it's worth pointing out that even to this day the film industry is very um you you work from project to project right like the the idea of a of a company that has um uh, it, it's, it's complicated, right? But the, uh, in general, a lot of visual effects artists are itinerant. They move around from job to job, wherever the, the projects are. Uh-huh. Um, and the typical uh, production schedule is anywhere from like six months to a year, right? right. Um, depending on the size and budget of the film and uh, a lot of different factors. But uh, some, some artists who stay on staff at a particular facility will just transition from project to project depending on what the facility is able to bring in but there's a huge contractor base that um facilities will ramp up and ramp down for given the uh production demands um and so there's a lot of movement and a lot of churn and uh the idea of especially for me in those days of staying at any one company um was uh it wasn't really a reality, right? Uh, I just, I just knew that I'd be moving around a lot. So. Yeah, because yeah, I remember uh, a little bit of those days when you were still working in uh, uh, in the film industry. 
anytime I asked, oh, what's Mike doing now? It's, oh, well, now he's working with this company. Oh, well, now he's doing something with this company. Well, now he's freelancing. You know, it seemed like it was yeah. kind of a kind of a hectic lifestyle. Is that part of the reason why, I don't want to get totally out of this yet, but is that part of the reason why you moved on from that? Um, I'd say it's part of it. Uh, also, I, I, I just, I'm the kind of person that gets uh, antsy. And, and, and so that, that, that aspect of it, at that time and for a number of years was um, really liberating, really exciting. I could go to a lot of different places. I could, you know, uh, meet a lot of different people. I mean, um, there was some international travel <laughs> associated with some of the projects you were doing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, and so that, that's all, that's all really exciting. Um, but then, you know, it can also get tiring and it's, it's kind of the age old uh, thing where, you know, it, it, it sounds luxurious to, uh, work for a company that sends you traveling a lot, but then, you know, you're spending, you're spending all your time in hotels and at work and don't have any personal connections. And all of a sudden you're like, what, where's, where's my family? Where's, you know, what's my sense of purpose? Right. Right. <laughs> right? And so, so the, the, the reality of it after a while just becomes a little, it just, it just changes. Um, and, and, you know, um, as life goes on, like, uh, interests change as well. And that's kind of what happened to me. Yeah. So, uh, before we get completely away from the, the film and television portion of it, uh, were there, well, you were part of a team that won, you won an Academy Award or the team that you were working with did? Uh, yes. Right, yes. For Benjamin, for Benjamin Button? Yes. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what, what was your role uh, in that? And then also how does a group celebrate an award like that? Like who actually takes home the trophy and that kind of stuff? <laughs> right. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure on this. I think the Academy, uh, designates, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not even going to say like the, technically how, how the awards are accepted. I'm not sure how that process works. If, if, if you petition the Academy or or you apply and then they, uh, either accept and nominate you or whether they independently arrive at a decision about who should receive the award. I'm not sure technically how all that works, but, mm-hmm. um, in terms of, you know, the work itself on Benjamin Button, I was, I spent a lot of my time building a digital model of Paris, uh, which involved, as you were saying before, some travel over to Paris to go up in a helicopter and shoot photos and then recreate, um, uh, Paris suburb. And you actually did that. You went up in a helicopter and like, took yeah. pictures and stuff. Oh, that's yeah, yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, and then brought it all back to the Bay area and, um, recreated Paris in the 1950s. So we rolled back time and, um, you know, it made it, made it look pretty for, I mean, here's, here's a short story about that. A short, short production story. We had it all planned. We flew out to Paris. We had a week out there. Um, and we knew what we wanted to shoot. Uh, which was the Arc de Triomphe. And when we went up in the helicopter, the, the days that we were there, every single day was overcast and the visibility was horrible. It was something like, I don't know, half a mile or something terrible, right? So we go up and we have the ideal shot in our minds. We'd mapped it all out in our heads. And we come back and look at all the the shots and they're all garbage right like it's it's just like this this foggy you know like like nobody would put that up on screen and so we we had to we had to work around that and basically do a lot of digital painting and a lot of reconstruction from source photography and things that we quite literally like hand painted ourselves um and so i spent a lot of my time uh building out that 
digital recreation of Paris um, for what was effectively, I think, like one and a half, maybe two seconds of uh, what, what you call an establishing shot. It's like when, you know, the, the, the plot changes and there's a beat and like you, you need to reset the viewer uh, or the audience to say like, okay, like we're now in this location, right? And so you call that an establishing shot. And, uh, and there was, a, you know, like you, you don't want to dwell too long in the establishing shot because you want to get into what, <laughs> what is the, mo- the, the, the uh, story point that yeah. you're trying to tell. Right. So a lot of establishing shots are like one and a half, two seconds long. I think actually in an action film, this is maybe a, a little bit of trivia here. Somebody timed it once. Um, probably more than one person has timed it. But I think the average shot length in a blockbuster action film is somewhere around four seconds um, wow. or something like that. And that, like when you think about that, you're like, wow, that's, that's a lot of cutting. That's a lot of camera changing pretty rapid camera changing right and like and that's typical of an action film there's like pacing and you know um excitement involved in in rapid cuts but um if you ever if you've never watched a a a blockbuster with with on mute and just take it trying to take in the visuals right like it's kind of a weird and jarring experience it's it's kind of frenetic and but it's only through like the whole ensemble of uh, of audio and or like you know uh, voice and music and sound effects that like the the story comes together so um i'm going off on a tangent here again but no no uh, no, no, no i i love yeah. it um but uh yeah i don't know i mean for me that's more interesting than an academy award to be honest with you like, yeah <laughs> i uh yeah my my boss went in uh, uh craig Barron, uh amazing guy who I, I worked with closely at Matt world digital um on benjamin button he went up on stage and accepted the award with um a couple other gentlemen from other companies that were also nominated for the uh, uh for best visual effects oh that's cool were there any um movies uh or shows or anything that you worked on that before we move away from that that you want to say like you were especially proud of either the film or what you did in it? Yeah, I, my, my favorite, I think, of all time was with the same company, Matt World Digital, um, up in Novato. Um, and, I mean, it's, it, it's my favorite for a number of reasons, but I'll, I'll just name a couple. It, so the, the film was Zodiac. The director was David Fincher. Um, I'm a huge David Fincher fan and always had been. Like, he was like, going back all the way to Fight Club, right? Like that was one of the, the first films with um, uh, really interesting camera moves that were all digitally created that were in service, like deeply in service of the storytelling, right? And so like that that had an immediate hook in me. And I've... Um, uh, I mean, he's, he's an auteur, he's, he's an amazing director. And so I, I had the uh, privilege of working on uh, his film Zodiac. Uh, that's my favorite. And I see on that one, it says environment artists. So you were doing uh, similar type of things where you were creating backgrounds. Building digital environments of yeah, environments. Uh, uh, San Francisco primarily in the 1970s. Yeah. It's very cool. You've got a few environment artist credits. And then I see beyond that, it looks like a lot of technical director credits. What's a technical director do? So the the titles are, um, 
they're a little bit vague and ambiguous. A technical director can mean a lot of different things at a lot of different uh, studios. Uh, in general, what it means is somebody who works on the technical side of art creation. And so um, the, uh, that, that could mean um, uh, lighting, digitally lighting um, a 3D scene. Um, <clears throat> for me, for many years, it meant doing effects work. So particle simulations, dust, cloud, explosions, all um, computer generated. And um, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure the, the origin of the, <clears throat> the title itself, but um, I, I, I think it, it kind of lends uh, or, or suggests something about, you know, using uh, more technical approaches to creating uh, the pixels that end up on the screen as opposed to more artistic approaches, which would be say, uh, painting or, um, uh, like digital painting or, um, say, uh, physical model work, like stop motion animation or something, something of that nature. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, in gen in general, it's all the same thing when you're talking about, um, there's a lot of nuance. I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, be misleading saying that there, you know, the specialties, there, there aren't specialties, uh, in, in the field, but a technical director is, is kind of a, I guess the, the short answer is the technical director is a broad categorization of a lot of, uh, responsibilities and duties that means different things at different facilities. So, yeah. Yeah. But I, when I see technical director, I would just, <laughs> I would just guess basically it means the stuff that you did before you were a technical director, you made sure that the people do that right, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, like a normal move up in the world. You go from being the guy that makes something to making sure that people are making it right. Well, so here's, here's the kind of interesting thing about it. Like, I don't, I don't, um, a technical director, it, it, it may mean, it, uh, it, the title may have some significance to some people, but for me throughout, um, especially in that, that time when I was um, doing a lot of different jobs at a lot of different companies, your, your credit or your, uh, your title and your role um, was less important than the work that, that we were actually doing. Right. Sure, um, sure. And, and the oh, yeah. team that we were collaborating with. So, so it wasn't like, it wasn't like one day, like somebody sat me down and said like, you're now going to be a technical director. We're going to give you a bump in salary. You have all these new responsibilities and we're going to put 15 interns under you. So like manage well, bon yeah, voyage. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like that. It was Here's like- Here's your hat in your parking space. You just, yeah. I mean, you, like, again, like a very itinerant uh, kind of contractor world where you would move from project to project and maybe a company would have like an allocation of like, oh, we've, we, you know, we have headcount for- you know, 15 contractors with this title, technical director. And so when you come in, they'd be like, you're a technical director and that's what we will list you as in the credits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so, um, you would just kind of assume the role. I, I I'm being, I'm being a little bit glib here, but like that, because there, there is, there, there is, there is an actual distinction, um, uh, in, in, in some very real ways for, for a lot of people and a lot of, uh, companies in particular. But for me, um, the title was less important than like what I was actually doing, the amount of responsibility and autonomy that I would have on a, uh, on a given shot um, or sequence of shots and um, how I'd be spending my time there. Right. Yeah. All right. I want to ask one more thing about the film and then we're going to move on. You worked at industrial light and magic, which is the, like the special effects or the visual effects arm, however you want to call that of a, uh, 
Lucasfilm, right? George Lucas, Star Wars, yeah. all that stuff. Right. Um, what, what in your mind was the coolest thing that they had? Because I know it's kind of like a museum in, in that building as well from the pictures that I've seen of it. <clears throat> what was the coolest thing to you that you saw? Like Darth Vader's suit, Yoda, E.T.? Okay. So, um, shoot. The, so I, I, I have a very clear picture in my head of the coolest thing. And it's gonna, I'm going to fumble through the description a little bit of what it was. <laughs> okay. Because, because I don't actually remember specifically, and I probably should. And I have in the past. Like I, could, I, I knew this in the past. But uh, okay, do, do you remember Ghostbusters 2? I think so. Um, I think, and again, I think it was Ghostbusters 2, like 90% sure, um, where the, I think he was, okay, this is where I'm really going to stumble through it. Uh, a, uh, an older evil um, count from like the, uh, from Eastern Europe from like 200 years ago. Yeah is summoned back to the earth. Like his spirit is summoned back to the earth as like the doomsayer. And there's a giant painting of him in the library. Do you remember this giant painting? No, it's no, okay. I missed, this, I'm not thinking of it. Uh -uh. This is, this is awful because I, I mean, I should know this a lot better, but um, <laughs> there's, there's a moment in Ghostbusters two where this giant painting, um, his eyes kind of glow and he, and he locks on, the main character and there's like the, the, there's it's known that like this creepy guy or like his spirit is somehow like embodied in this painting are you looking it up oh, right now oh i know what you're talking about no no uh v vigo or... uh, yeah v, uh, well i think uh, yeah search of the v or something like I thought that it was something like that because the one guy's like it is vigo yes yes rick moranis right i remember the actor's name pretty sure yeah. it's moranis uh morales moranis oh man yeah um no, the one that the guy's like please don't take pictures of this yeah, yeah yes 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 yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, 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 yeah. yes so he's um he's like the lackey right and, and but he's also like a crucial element in the story because he's bringing the you know this evil spirit back to uh, right. destroy new york right um anyway that painting was in the hallway and i would walk past it all the time uh going to lunch and it was like i, I love i love super creepy and kind of like weird things yeah. like that anyway and so um so that's a, that's a big that picture too someone, isn't it oh it's huge it's i yeah i mean i yeah, dimension wise i want to say it's like seven feet tall and you know like four five feet wide something like that yeah i didn't even realize that that was a ilm project huh. i mean there are a lot that you probably wouldn't right um they're uh especially especially when you go to the um well, I mean, it, it depends on depends on what what movies you you've seen and what what you watch, and you know everybody's <laughs> at, at different points in time on that. But like, if you if you roll back to like the uh, the the pre digital era um, when you know when a lot of um, a lot of the special effects for big budget films were handled in a physical way. I mean, like yeah, going out on a lot and like, and, yeah, 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 quite literally like blowing things up and with, you know, explosives or building physical models and then like crashing them into each other and all that kind of stuff. Um, Island was a, was a very big, uh, uh, studio, um, 
for uh, for creating those kinds of effects. Um, they they had the resources and um, and the the skill and the talent uh, to uh, to pull those things off. One thing that I just learned recently, and if this isn't true, maybe you know, and you could confirm or uh, disconfirm it. I, I had heard recently that there were several shots from the movie Spaceballs where. George Lucas was like, we have some extra footage left over that you might be able to use and we can help you a little bit if you agree to not market any of these products uh, to compete with Star Wars stuff. And they were like, all right, deal. So a lot of those scenes where you see like the um, escape pods ejecting off of the ship are like just like cut footage from Star Wars that George Lucas was like, yeah, you can have this. Just don't don't market against us. Huh. That's interesting. I'd, I'd never heard that before. Yeah. Wouldn't surprise me though that he seems like he's a a pretty smart uh, kind of two moves ahead kind of guy. All right, I want to talk about Glyph too, because that that's something that you're still pretty active with, or or not as much. Yeah. So <clears throat> for context, uh, you know, Glyph is um, my single member LLC uh, company that I do uh, all of my. Uh, freelance well it's <laughs> meant different things at different points in time right um uh-huh. for a while it was uh, uh an entity through which i would do freelance work um uh i i wrote software and sold software commercially uh through glyph um i've done uh, i've been a vendor for uh other companies through uh glyph uh, providing consulting uh services so it's um it's it's kind of evolved over time as i've evolved over time um, yeah. but i've had i've had that company since 2007 i believe yeah and that started if i remember the way that you uh, explained it to me you needed better tools to do the stuff that you were doing with yeah. and so you just made it yourself and then yeah. kind of branded that and sold it to other people that did exactly like my yeah, it was it was that it was that shot on uh, Benjamin Button, the Paris shot that I was telling you about. That um, yeah. that uh, it, when when we had to recreate all of this stuff in a way that we never planned to recreate, it became painfully obvious like, what we were missing in terms of tooling to build it. So, um, and because I was uh, uh, primarily responsible for doing the entire uh, digital build of it, um, I uh, I built the tools myself that would help me you know, uh, achieve what I was really after. Um, and, and yeah, and then and an extension of that was that it became clear that, you know, other people could use these tools as well. So, um, that, that started Glyph, uh, and launched the commercial software, um, uh, marketing and, um, e-commerce and everything else that uh, would happen over the next, uh, 10 years. Yeah. What are the, uh, what are all the applications for it? Cause I imagine that You've used it for uh, film, television stuff, but I imagine people could use it for any kind of art, digital art product uh, projects, or for video games, or for I don't I don't okay. even know what else. So it's uh, so it's a pretty niche tool. Um, it's <laughs> and I'm going to nerd out a little bit here on Go for um, it. on the so the the the, the kind of work that I specialize in when I build environments is um, uh, basically digital map painting in a, a 3D world, right? So um, are you familiar with map painting or what the term is or how, like no. the history of it? Okay, so before it, before computers, um, the way that you would accomplish uh, a lot of, uh, all, all kinds of effects. Um, I mean, it's it's a really deep subject, but historically, Matte painting um, would happen on glass, uh, 
and <clears throat> then you would have layers of glass that you would shoot your camera through and you would light the glass. Um, and it was, it was a very physical thing um, that, uh, that ended up uh, on film, right? And then in the digital revolution, um, the, the painting of, the, of those pixels uh, was happening entirely in the computer. You no longer needed the glass and you could go straight to film from the computer, right? right. Um, but it was still a 2D medium. Right, you're still you're still working with essentially layers, much like you would work with a physical pane of glass. You were working in Photoshop layers now to create um, these uh, these matte paintings, okay. and um, when well, to make it super simple, is it kind of like when uh, when you're making something in just like even like a just a simple art editing or word art project on like Microsoft? And you're like, bring this to front, push this to back. Like you're just kind of like creating layer over layer of, of things. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. You're creating layers over layers and, um, and those layers can mean different things for different purposes, right? Um, maybe your camera is moving subtly to the left. And so you want to have a little bit of parallax between the foreground tree and the background mountains. So the background mountains are on one layer and the foreground tree is on the other layer and then the effect the visual effect is that they slide against each other when you move translate the camera right 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 to give um, that idea of like depth and uh perspective and stuff right yes yeah. yes um so um and then uh, you know commonly you're you're uh compositing those backgrounds those matte paintings with a foreground element uh that was shot against green screen or blue screen mm -hmm. uh, which is you know your actor and you can do all kinds of things there um that uh place the actor in a place that uh he or she never was physically right, right? so um so it's it's all it's all illusion it's all magic and then when the digital revolution came uh and uh and moved from 2d to 3d and more and more work started happening in 3D uh, because it afforded us to do um, more kinds of complicated camera movements, for example, um, mm -hmm. uh, and achieve other kinds of effects. Again, going back to Fight Club, you know, one of the films that really impressed me early on was just how elaborate those camera moves are. And if you haven't seen it in a while, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and watch it because this was, I, I think it was 98. I could be wrong about that. Um, was when the it timing came sounds out. about right. Cause that was yeah. like and, right when I was starting high school. And I mean, Fincher did all kinds of crazy things like dropped cameras through floors. I don't know if you remember that, uh, the camera move, I, I think it goes all the way down, uh, to the basement level and then swings around and goes inside of, um, uh, a white truck um that, that yeah. was holding a bomb that was yeah it was it was just a, this really elaborate um uh, description of what was you know to, to, to help tell the story uh and this visual description i guess is a way to put it right yeah yeah um and but but all of that movement from 2d into 3d um created a, a massive like massively more complex way of interacting and, and designing and thinking about space and thinking about how to build things. Right. Mm -hmm. And so with any kind of massive technological shift like that, um, the tooling gets built by the people who are actually trying to do the work <laughs> and yeah. to, to create, to create the artistry and to, um, and to innovate and to solve problems. Um, you end, I, I mean, I think this, this is, this is true for any craft, um, regardless of what 
what it is or, or what your expertise level, right? You, you start designing and building the tools that help you do your work better. And that's essentially what the matte painting toolkit was for the 3D world, right? Um, yeah. a, a, way of, a way of doing 3D matte paintings that made it easier, more, more efficient, um, less uh, manual labor, less burdensome um, on the artists who were trying to work in 3D. That makes sense. You know, the military, uh, when I was in the Navy, working as a helicopter maintainer, I remember somebody said that the Navy would give people money, like there was a set amount of money, if you could create a tool that hadn't been used that made a job easier, or if you could like rewrite a certain step in a technical manual that was more efficient than the the way that it was done before. So like they were constantly encouraging the people that always did the work to like, you know, find better ways to to do it or better tools to do it with. So that makes sense. Did, what were some of the tools that came out of Oh, that you know what? I I never personally saw anybody take advantage of that and there was a time when I was in charge of the um technical publications. I was the technical publications librarian and uh, I, I had asked, have you ever, other people, I was like, have you ever seen anybody make good on this? And they're like, no, it happens like a couple times a year, if that, <laughs> like worldwide. So, Is it yeah. like a big celebration when it happens then? Is it yeah. like, hey, I mean, we got one. <laughs> I, would, I would think, yeah, if they're just handing out like $5,000, anytime can think of a better way to do something, it's probably been thought of. Got to up the So does, uh, does the stuff that, um, you call them matte paintings. Does that translate directly into virtual reality? Because uh, to to catch people up in case we didn't directly say it, you went from working in film to um, and also making some software for that, and then you left and started a virtual reality company. Mm-hmm. And uh, are are most of those skills directly transferable from what you were doing with movies to what you were doing with virtual reality, or was there a, yeah, another a learning are- curve? A lot are sure. I mean, you can think of you can think of virtual reality as just a different medium, um, much like you can think of, uh, say, video games as a different medium, right? But like right. The tools that you're using are all um, are all the same. I mean, th- there's there's of course a lot of differences in technique and approach and how you problem solve and the things that you care about, the constraints that you're under. Um, you know, a big one, for example, when you're um, when you're designing for uh, for a shot in the film, a, a single frame can take many minutes or in some cases hours to, to render, to, to resolve, right, to, to the final pixels. Um, but um, in video games or in VR, VR is even, even more aggressive than video games. You need to render at 30 or 60 or 90 um, hertz, uh, 90 frames a second, right? Um, so, uh, it needs to happen in real time, as they say, it needs to happen instantaneously. And so the, the choices that you make and how you think about, um, the, um, the end result is very different, but the authoring tools themselves are very similar. Everything that you've done, well, I don't know a whole lot about what you're doing now. We will get into that, but a lot of the things that you've done there's been a serious storytelling element to it, uh, whether it's directly with working with a film that's you know has a very obvious beginning, middle, and end, or virtual reality where you're creating an experience for somebody. Is that something that 
a lot of people in the field that you're in that you work with, do they have that same storytelling connection? Or do you think that that comes from specifically having like a literature background? Um, no, I think, I think it's pretty common. Um, I think, uh, I, I think a lot of, well, the, um, people I, a lot of my coworkers a lot of the people that I've uh, come across in the industry have uh, have a real strong passion for uh, for not just storytelling but uh, a visual element of storytelling um, and that means different things to different people right so some people really love to um, uh, say just light a scene right and like that that's what they're they're into they love like creating um, the the mood the the visual style um, yeah. of of a particular uh, shot. Um, but, um, uh, but, but there's, there's all kinds, right? There, there are other, there, it's also true that there, uh, are a lot of people in, um, in the industry who are, uh, much more people, people, right. And are, are in the industry as part of like the connective tissue of making all of this stuff work. Right. So, um, you've got artists and engineers for sure. Um, and, uh, they're largely driven by, you know, different, um, uh, aesthetic, uh, motivations, uh, or have different aesthetic motivations, but, um, uh, there's also like producers and, uh, uh, coordinators and directors who, um, who work in a, in a different way and have, uh, I, I think, I think everybody on some level is invested in telling a great story, um, but how their skills apply and, uh, their particular niche or, or interest, um, can vary. Right. Yeah. Okay, so the the skills are are pretty similar that you're working with going from one to the other. Did you just kind of get tired of the the movie film thing, or did you specifically CVR as just like an exciting new opportunity, or uh, you wanted to be more one of the, the first people to get in on it, or more the more the latter? I mean, the I I remember when I first put on a Oculus uh, development kit headset and uh, was kind of immediately transported into this other world that like it, it was clear to me in, in that moment that there was this whole new kind of uh, artistic medium that was going to open up and there, there were all new rules that were going to apply and yeah. it was very much uncharted territory. And so since I'd, I was at a particular point in my career where it made sense to, um, to transition because I've been doing the, the, the same thing for long enough. And as I mentioned at the, you know, the very beginning, and as you, you know me very well, um, I get kind of antsy just doing the, the same thing over and mm-hmm. over and over again. So, um, so it, uh, it, it felt like the, this was a, just like in the um, mid nineties or late nineties, early two thousands, there was a lot of stuff that needed to be figured out about how to uh, work with 3d and um, how to tell stories like Pixar was telling uh, with mm-hmm. three, all 3d characters and um, how to, uh, you know, design new camera language and cinematography um, in Hollywood. Like it felt like that era was kind of coming back in a new, not even industry yet. Right. Like it was in 2013, 2014, it was, um, uh, it wasn't even clear like what what it was, right? It was just like it was this crazy device that like was had some very real emotional hook and and it had some very very obvious um, advantages and unique capabilities. But where it was all going to lead was, you know, anybody's guess. So that was that was in part exciting, very exciting too. And and I, I naturally gravitate 
to uh, things like that that are that are new and different and unsolved, right? Yeah, but at that point, you're older. You've got people in your life that are dependent on you. Was there a a sense of like, okay, well, you know what? After a certain amount of time, we should have some money coming in, or was it just a a really throwing a hail mary and praying and saying, let's hope this works out? Uh, you know, what? How much risk was involved in leaving a job that you know a lot of people would say you were working at ILM? That's that's awesome. Why would you want to leave to mm. go and start this new thing in a in a field that's kind of untested? Um, I don't know if I have a great answer. Uh, there, I, I think, I think the, the only thing that I can say is that, um, I've, I've always been more interested in, um, new opportunities, um, uncharted territory, uh, things that opportunity areas where I can learn and grow and do something different. Um, those Mm -hmm. have, those have had a very powerful gravitational pull for me. and. Um, if I, uh, if I feel like I'm just executing on learned knowledge, um, or, uh, not growing in any way, I start, I start to get antsy. And so like, I, uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, the, the, the short answer to the question is I was, I was, I guess maybe, uh, aware of, um, well, you know, I I don't even know if I would totally say say that. It di- it didn't feel like a huge risk to me. It yeah. didn't feel it didn't feel scary. It didn't feel like I was ready. I was ready for something different, and so um, I just leapt into it. Yeah. Well, that's one thing I know. Um, I know that my sister, your wife, has said to me before that uh, she's always admired about you is you don't look at a risk as a chance to fail, but as an opportunity. And, um, you know, a lot of the impetus for starting this podcast came from, I started writing a a novel after I got sidelined from teaching from having too many kids of my own. And that just started opening up a lot of opportunities for me. And then I started thinking like, man, why doesn't everybody do what they would just really want to do? And I think for a lot of people, it's just that, that that risk side of things is so scary. Um, Did it feel that way to you? Well, not really. But I, I mean, I was pushed out of the job that I was doing by, by you know, the the need to be a stay at home dad. So for me, it was more like I need to do something else, or I'm going to lose my mind. And I was like, well, you know what? <laughs> I've been saying since I was a kid, I'm going to write a novel someday. Now I've got the time, do it. And. Uh, that parlayed into the podcast and then meeting lots of cool people that I wouldn't have otherwise met and having conversations like this. Um, so it, it took me, you know, taking just life forced me into the, the risks that I took that ended up paying off. But mm-hmm. you seem to take them willingly. Have you always kind of had the personality of like, I don't know what this is going to be, but let's try it. Or did it kind of come on you with the age and experience? Um, so- <laughs> This is where it's it's a little tricky, right? Because uh, 
I, I don't, I don't self-describe as some kind of daredevil or <laughs> I'm actually, right. I'm like kind of, I'm, I'm more the person who will step back and watch somebody else leap first, figure out. <laughs> All right. Well, that didn't work out. Face. How can we make that better? Yeah. How can, how might, how might I leap differently? <laughs> so, so I, there, yeah, it, it, it's, it's not like, it's not like I am uh, evil can evil. <laughs> or you know uh somebody who is who, who willingly just like takes a plunge but but i i do think uh that uh i've i've always been the kind of person even going back to you know we were talking about undergrad earlier right and mm. um what i wanted to do after undergrad there, there was no question that like leaving leaving michigan and moving to california for an unpaid internship and trying to you know figure it out from there was what I needed to do right um, um, and it uh, it just followed naturally that 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 seemed right and so I guess I guess part of it is just like an intuition or a feeling that okay yeah this this seems like something that I want to pursue and then I'm you know mentally committed to it there's not a whole lot of like hemming and hawing or um, mm-hmm. yeah uh, uh, second guessing uh, when when I get those feelings, but but certainly there there are a lot. Of, I'm I'm a little bit nervous to uh, uh, to jump full force into things that I don't have that feeling about. Right. Well, um, sure. That's probably that's probably just good intuition, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. Call it what you will. <laughs> um. All right. I'm gonna finish talking about the stuff that you're doing now, but I want to ask you a little bit about freelancing because uh, it's uh, a world that I've recently stepped into myself uh, with uh, blogging and some some just general web content and editing type of stuff. Um, what kind of, because you said that some of the jobs that you've had and that you've done recently were freelancing. What kind of freelancing jobs do your skills apply to? Because I know you've worked with different artists that specialize in different mediums. What What kind of um, art do you make and like what kind of skills do you bring in terms of collaborations? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of it is, uh, building, uh, building worlds at the end of the day, building worlds that, um, are either very familiar to people, places Mm -hmm. like recreating places that, uh, everybody knows, um, such as Paris, for example. Um, uh, in other cases, it's, uh, building completely fictional, uh, and abstract worlds. Um, and it, it, it really comes down to the vision for the project, um, whether uh, uh, it's somebody who I personally want to work with and, um, and the, there's a good relationship or connection um, uh, from the other side as well, right? Um, so uh, the, the, the kind of work is, is really broad, um, but you know, if I were to categorize it, it, it would be uh, environment creation, um, com- synthetic uh, computer graphics environments. What kind of stuff do you get into working with people that do, you know, more physical type art? Uh, not much, actually. Um, that uh, very little of that. Um, it's it's mostly digital, uh, all and intended for uh, digital targets. So, what kind of projects have you worked on um, that get outside of the range of something that you would see on a TV screen or a movie screen? Uh, personal projects or professional projects? Both. Uh, not many professional projects these days. Um, personal projects. Oh, uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll just say this: like uh, the the um, the kinds of things that I, I really enjoy doing on uh, a personal level 
are mostly these days uh, coding and creating um, creating tools that enable others to do the kind of work that I've done in uh, in my career. Um, I find that like really fulfilling. It's it's there's a very uh, strong creative side to coding, um, and, and especially if if I'm doing it on my own and I don't have any other um, product directives except for my own interests yeah. and ambitions that's very liberating. Um, and there, there's a, there's a kind of, uh, rigor and, um, uh, sensibility to coding that is, uh, it's on the opposite end of the spectrum from the subjectivity of, uh, like whether, uh, something up on screen looks good or not, or looks correct. Right. There's, there's mm -hmm. a lot of, there's a lot of judgment and subjectivity when you look at a piece of art and say, I like it or I don't like it. Right. Um, and that's, that's, uh, that's in some ways wonderful and, uh, uh, a great way to spend, uh, time, uh, investing in, um, uh, putting something out there that you hope other people like, um, on the other end of the, that kind of creative spectrum is the, in the, in the coding and engineering and more technical side, um, the, the satisfaction of knowing that you got a solution right or that it is um, broadly applicable to people um, in a way that enables them to uh, do their own work better um, or to be better artists or um, to see things differently, um, so on and so forth. And so personally, that's the kind of stuff that I really enjoy spending my time doing these days. Yeah. And d does most of that happen then under the glyph banner or yes, not necessarily? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. A any, anything that I would release does for sure. Yeah. Do you have uh, like your own stash of things that are just like your own personal tools that you don't share with people? Oh yeah. Or? Oh yeah, absolutely. Do you want to, can you tell me about any of those or are those just top secret? <laughs> oh, it's boring. Let's not talk <laughs> about that. <laughs> All right. Um, well, do you have any other, just for anybody who's thinking about getting into freelancing, do you have any general tips? The last thing that I heard from um, my last guest, Zach Snyder, he said, if you're going to get into freelancing, regardless what it is, make sure that you are really good at communicating with people because mm. you have to be able to produce what they want, but you also have to be able to tell them when what they want isn't realistic. That's, that's some great advice. Yeah. I mean, um, communication relationship building, um, is, uh, I mean, that, that's a, that's a lifelong craft in and of itself. Right. Mm. Um, and, and so there's, there's the stuff that you put out there, the stuff that, that you do for your job. Um, but absolutely. I mean, this, this doesn't go just for freelancing. Um, it's <laughs> for, for, uh, positive, uh, associations and in life in general like good and a marriage style. and a friendship and <laughs> yeah. Anything, yeah. being a good co-worker in a massive corporation that you know like the yes it's it's excellent advice but um i think that it's especially important in uh in freelancing because you have to communicate on a number of different levels that fall outside of your area of expertise mm. um for example like you need to be able to communicate on um a uh on, on the money level right like how you're getting paid um how you talk about negotiations and contracts um with things you care about things you're willing to let go um why you care about them uh why you're willing to let them go um uh and 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 then just in presenting your own work um you know removing yourself from the process and understanding what uh what your client 
is looking for, being receptive to their needs, um, even if you disagree with them, um, you know, drawing, knowing when to uh, fight for something you believe in as opposed to um, uh, relinquish control. These, these are all, there's, there's lots of little tests um, in, in every professional engagement, right? Um, and, uh, and, Anyway, so I'm, I'm rambling now, but I'm, I'm basically no, no, echoing. No, a, uh, who, who did you say your last speaker or your last guest was? His name is Zach Snyder. Um, uh-huh. And actually, yeah. his episode just came out today. But yeah, you should check him out. His, his stuff is incredible. He's done a, a couple murals inside some uh, different buildings where he's painted the walls and the ceilings. And in some places, like the furniture and the floor. <laughs> it's really amazing. That's, that's great. Well, yeah. So I'm curious for you, like, how, how has it been? What are, what are some of the lessons and takeaways that you've had? And I, I do have one I, that, that I'll come back to. Uh, that, that, that's my own. I'm not just parroting Zack Snyder. But, uh, <laughs> but no, I, I, I'm, I'm curious for you since, um, but yeah, it, it just what, what's, what's been one of the main takeaways? Um, yeah, hold on just one second. I'll edit this long silence out, but I have to plug this computer in. It's about to die. Okay. It wasn't plugged in. <laughs> All right. Okay, there, we're good. Um, for me so far in my very young paid career as a freelancer, uh, well, the one thing I'm trying to figure out right now is like how much I can communicate without getting annoying <laughs> mm. <laughs> because uh, I, I got hired to do a month's worth of weekly blogs. And so I've got the first one. I sent it to him and I was like, if this one's good, let me know. and. Uh, I'll, I'll keep moving forward with this style and tone. And it's been a couple of days and I haven't heard that it, there was anything wrong with it. So I'm like, well, I guess I should just move forward or should I follow up or, you know, so for me, that's, that's the part of the communication that I, it, it, the line I'm trying to straddle is, you know, be a good communicator, but don't be annoying, like constantly tapping on the shoulder. Oh, what about this? Uh, what about this? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that's the line I'm trying to straddle right now. I don't know if I've learned a lot <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, uh, one thing I, I'm learning right now is when you get busy, it tends to like get really busy. So I'm getting, I'm learning to be direct with people when I say I don't have time to do this. Or I can do this a little bit, but I can only commit a little bit of time to it. Sure. Um, yeah. I setting, like to say yes to things. Yeah. I like to say yes to things, but I can't do everything quality if I do everything that people ask me to do. Right. Right. So, yeah. And, and knowing where that line is and where to apply efforts and when to step off the gas, that's, that's a tricky thing, isn't it? Yeah. Especially when you've got a wife and kids that also want your attention. <laughs> of, course, of course. I could work all day and all night if nobody was bugging me. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, kind of thinking about your question, um, the, the one, the, the, I don't remember how you phrased it. Was it, was it a piece of advice? Was that, was that the... Yeah, if there's anything that you would tell a freelancer um, just who's starting out and needs a little, <laughs> needs a little pat on the back but also a you know go get them kind of a i think it's important yeah i think it's important to invest in in yourself um and and whatever whatever that means to you like invest in um the the time the education uh the the tooling um the relationships right like invest in the things that you actually care about as opposed to taking jobs to um 
take a job and and get things by. Now, don't get me wrong. We we all have to take jobs to you know make ends meet. Especially freelancing is your your full time job, yeah, right? Sure. Like there's yeah. all we don't always have the luxury of doing what we love. But I think all I think important the important thing is having an eye, always like doing a, a check in and having a having an awareness and an eye towards those things that we really want to be doing with our careers because it's easy to get lost in the noise. Right? Mm. It's easy. It's easy to, as, as you were just kind of alluding to, right. You have, you know, a, different voices coming in and saying like, Hey, can you do this for us? Can you do that for us? And if you quickly just start filling up your calendar with things that people want you to do, you can, I think, lose sight of what it is that you really want to be doing um, mm. and where you want, and, you know, years could slip by and you've just been kind of moving around from place to place. That's, that's the kind of crazy thing about freelancing is that like you, there's so many different directions that you can go um, that if you're, if it's not like kind of considered and curated and um, uh, intentional, um, it can, it can be wayward and, um, and, and feel, I think, uh, um, purposeless. I mean, yeah. I, like that's, that's what it's felt like for me at times. Right. When, when it, uh, when. Well, I mean, I, some of those big career changes, like you were talking about, maybe you felt like, eh, these projects it, are all right, but eh, it's just, is not there something else I want to be doing? Yeah. Like what, what do you want to, yeah. What do you want to be doing with your life? What do you want to be doing? Um, and, 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 and that's, I think that is kind of the, the beauty and the curse of freelancing is that it, in, in a lot of ways, it opens up possibilities to be very self-directed and to, um, determine the course of your own future. Mm. Um, uh, but on, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, it can, it can feel, I think a lot of the time, very, uh, confusing about like what, what is the right, right way to go. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, so I think, you know, kind of investing in yourself and, um, building up your own skills, um, and just always kind of like doing that check-in with like, what, what do I really want to be, where do I want to be developing, um, as, uh, uh, as a freelancer and, um, what are, and now always being curious about what might be coming around the bend that you could, uh, tap into and learn from and, um, use to innovate for, than the next group of people who are going to follow behind you. Right. Um, yeah. so I don't know if that was a coherent thought. That was kind of like a, <laughs> it worked for me, man. I liked it. It was, a, it was a little bit of a tangential rambling thought, but whatever, that's what I got. <laughs> it worked for me. All right. Well, the last subject that I want to talk with you about is, uh, just travel because you're a guy that's, uh, professionally and personally gone and seen some cool places. Uh, what are some of the, assuming people can get back to regular travel soon, hopefully, what are some of the cooler places that you've seen either per personally or professionally oh, um, man. Yeah. That, that maybe go unrecognized by most people? Oh, that, everybody, everybody wants yeah. to see the Eiffel Tower and you've seen that, but. Um, well, every, everybody comes from different backgrounds and experiences too, right? So the things that I say are interesting to me might be very, well, let me just give an example. One, one of my favorite places um, was Nicaragua, especially on the, uh, on the coast um, of, of Nicaragua. Hmm. Um, and, uh, but, you know, maybe for somebody who has uh, lived in Central America nearby, like visiting <laughs> Nicaragua, isn't that, isn't that interesting? Right, <laughs> just, right. Um, but, uh, well, most but, of my listeners are from North America. 
Okay. <laughs> well, that, got, it's, it's good to have I got that some in Ontario, some, uh, Ontario, <laughs> some in Quebec. Uh, uh-huh. uh, I think just recently I've had some in Ireland, uh-huh. but none in, none in South or Central America. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly, if, if I were just like, throw a dart on on the board i would be happy if it landed anywhere in central or south america um Hmm. uh, there's uh, there's so much to see so much uh amazing culture um and food and uh just a a variety of enrichness of experiences that you can have there that um uh so i i mean i'll just rattle off a few uh a few places that uh, that i personally love uh uh, Patagonia, um, uh, all along the uh, eastern side of uh, Brazil, um, mm-hmm. near the water, uh, some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. Um, uh, Montevideo in Uruguay, I think, is a really, really fun and interesting uh, city. That's one that I think is maybe not on the map for a lot of people. Um, say, as but, soon as you said it, I was going to ask you where it was, but you said Uruguay, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, hiking in the Andes uh, in Peru would be on the top of my list as well. Uh, that's uh, the Andes are unmatched. Uh, well, uh, they're, they're they're some of the most majestic mountains uh, in the world, and there are many majestic mountains in the world. So not to not to necessarily uh, quantify them. Say you already <laughs> threw Patagonia chain. out there, and I've, <laughs> I've not been to Patagonia, but oh man, I saw a documentary about it. it Might have been on Netflix. Um, but it was about Patagonia and the, the story behind the guys that started the clothing company and all that stuff too. Beautiful place yeah. and a really interesting story behind, uh, behind that clothing company too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking of mountain ranges, even, even the Canadian Rockies, uh, north of Banff going in, uh, into Jasper, mm. um, that's, that's a, one of the most beautiful drives I've ever done, um, around, uh, ice fields, parkway, parkway or pathway. I think it's parkway, ice fields, parkway, um, is stunning absolutely stunning um so um but then yeah i mean that there there are a lot of really amazing experiences i've had in the pacific northwest just hiking as well um i mean we we've got um the the sierra mountains um here in california uh never cease to disappoint me um and uh the cascades uh up north um in washington are uh are beautiful as well um very very different very uh very kind of diverse terrain um but yeah those are those are some of my picks i look forward to backpacking again someday it's been it's been a few years yeah. <laughs> having a kid does that does that to you right <laughs> yeah yeah even now with uh let's see my youngest now is five we can get out and do some trips but like to go out and do anything really rugged is is still kind of kind of yeah. iffy yeah i mean yeah. you can do some rugged stuff but not like days of hiking rugged but like an hour and a half in type rugged <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. yeah so <sighs> shoot man i've run through just about everything that i had to talk to you about and well we've been doing it for a little over an hour but, what's uh, going on with you freelancing these days i mean you touched on it a little bit but um aside from the podcast i think you you mentioned that uh you're starting some professional blogging is that right Yep. Yep. I just got my first, um, paying client blogging. I've got a couple other clients that pay me in like goods <laughs> rather than money. So, uh-huh. like um, what, what, what are some of the goods you get? Well, the first, the first one was, uh, the podcast. So the, the podcast, 
company that produces this is Hey Guys Media Group. And the the guys that started that had me on their podcast uh, early when I had just finished writing the book that I uh, am trying to get out there into the world right now. And they were like, hey, man, you should start a podcast. And I was like, eh. and they're like, we're actually going to start a company producing podcasts. We can give you a good deal. I was like, I can't really afford it. They're like, all right, write our blogs and then we'll just produce your show for writing blogs. And then another company is going to give me hot sauce in exchange for writing blogs. Um, oh, man. So I, I love a good hot sauce. You know that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I get some stuff from some of the podcast sponsors for free, but like, uh, We'll see where it goes from there. Uh, I've had a couple other people ask me about doing some web content and editing um, on a existing website for a, for somebody who's got a significant online following and does a little bit of online retail too. So we'll see. That's interesting, man. So are you leaning more into um, uh, into like copywriting and that kind of stuff, or do you want to do like where, where do you want to uh, take it next? You know, I don't have. I don't have a firm idea in my mind of where the the professional writing will go because mm-hmm. for me the whole the dream of all of it all the creative stuff first and foremost is to be a novelist. Mm-hmm. So um all the writing that I do now is just as a means to keep the focus on writing so that I can keep just writing and you know putting out stuff for people and then also writing my fiction on the side and then hopefully fingers crossed i'll get some money from fiction and then i can kind of shift my focus completely into that but uh yeah i want to i want to keep doing the podcast keep doing the writing and then this kind of writing is uh you know good practice and a, a just a, a another step towards kind of keeping me here rather than having to go <laughs> work for somebody else yeah, even me doing my yeah, yeah. my other creative stuff too. Uh, that no, that really resonates with me. Um, yeah, the, the more the more you can uh, lean into the the things that you care about and and get to that uh, place. I mean, this is the other thing. It's like you don't ever really arrive at one place, right? Like it's just a, a constant evolution of yeah. uh, interests and um, projects and whatever else. I think that that was you know when I was. When I was younger, I always kind of thought of about like some kind of end goal of like arriving. But like when you become a novelist and you're, you know, like that supporting you full time, uh, it's not like it's not like that's it, right? Like then you got more books to write and you <laughs> right. got like marketing and touring and public speaking and like, you know, it just continues to evolve, right? And that and, that sounds like honestly, the writer's life, like the novelist's life, sounds great to me. I get eight months where I don't have to see anybody. Then I go on a book tour for two weeks, see a bunch of people, do a bunch of public speaking, get all that out of my system, and then go back to eight months of not seeing anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, get it out because I like being around people, but then I'll get sick of it pretty fast too. So get that out of my system and then just leave me alone and let me write. What's, do you know what a typical PR cycle is for, for uh, a book? I mean, I, I'm sure it depends on the book and, mm. you know, like the, uh, the name behind it and everything else. But is it, is it really just two weeks out of the year or is it more like you've got like... It all depends. Like there's, there's yeah. some people that will probably, you know, unofficially tour on and off all year long. Like if there's a, a Comic-Con in a big city market, they'll go to it and try to sell some books and get some stuff out there. So yeah, the the big big name guys like 
Stephen King, John Grisham. I think those guys will typically go on the road for like two to three weeks, hit some TV shows, hit some radio shows, do that kind of thing. But for the for the lesser known or the independent, I think it's kind of a nonstop grind of just trying to get on podcasts. You know, I've got I got these books here that people have come on my show and they've sent me cool signed copies of their books. Um, and that's, you know, that's what they do. They're on social media every day. They're trying to find podcasts to get on and making, uh, making connections with other writers and cross promoting each other's stuff. So, so what's that? I've been looking at that easel in the back corner there this whole time. Or like, what is that, that stand that you have them on? That easel is actually the, it was a bench that came with a, a dining set. The first dining set that me and Rachel bought when we got married, very cheap. And then when we got home, uh, when we moved from Florida back to Michigan, we took it apart and then had to put it back together again, but we didn't have all the parts to put it back together. So I <laughs> cut it apart and turned it into an easel because I needed nice. <laughs> something to um, put my writing on so that when I took my handwriting and then transcribed it, I wasn't looking down and craning my neck all the time. <laughs> Well, that, I think that's a that's a good way to wrap this up. We've gone full circle from your DIY uh, microphone <laughs> to my DIY easel. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's a the whole garden of DIY, uh, cheap as you can get it. That's that's my that's my office. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and and crumpled up paper on the floor. Oh, classic! There you yeah. go. It's, it's, a, it's officially a writer's office. I've got weeks worth of crumpled up paper that my wife is dying for me to get rid of, but we don't have any rats yet. So, <laughs> well, this was fun. It was good talking to you. Yeah, this was awesome, man. Um, we gotta we gotta keep in touch more. I know we always say that, and it's hard with the time change, but we we will. We're doing better now than we were, especially with the kids, man. Those kids love love seeing each other. Yeah, for sure. Anytime I'm like, hey, anybody want to try call baby no no? Like, yay! <laughs> <laughs> so even if, even if we don't get you, just trying to get a hold of you guys, the kids are like, well, you tried. All right, good yeah, job, yeah. Dad. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> we love you. Uh, well, tell my sister I said hi. I will. Um, tell my niece I said hi. Take care of yourself. Whole extended family. Tell them all I said hey to. Same for me. Same for me. All right. It was good talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye. 25 seconds. Here we go. Thank you to HeyGuysMediaGroup.com for making this show possible. Go check them out. HeyGuysMediaGroup.com. Baby Farm Soaps out of Berea, Kentucky. Go to Facebook and check out Baby Farm Soaps and Rivertown Adventures in Lansing, Michigan. Go to RivertownAdventures.com. Please rate and review this podcast.